It's time for Agribiz. Agriculture, it's your business. Here are some of the top headlines you need to know. I'm Rusty Alverson, and we've got Sarah Heinrich at the ranch. How's it going, Sarah? You know, no complaints. It's been a fun week, and I love when you can go to events, and there's just a lot of excitement that's brewing, and I feel like that was certainly this week. Myself in Jamestown and you in Grand Forks. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a really busy week, Sarah. Uh, as you mentioned, you were reporting from the Ag Evolution Summit in Jamestown, hosted by the North Dakota Farmers Union. Uh, before we hear any audio from the event, what were some of your thoughts and takeaways from the day's agenda, Sarah? I was blown away the minute that I pulled up to the North Dakota Farmers Union office. Mm -hmm. The parking lot was full. You could not find a parking space. I came in. There was a line out the door to register. And I just, I mean, I think that really is um, a testament to the programming that they put on that day. You know, the whole focus was the Carbon Conundrum 2.0. And there are so many questions that surround the carbon issue. I think producers are tiptoeing in, they want to get involved, but maybe they aren't exactly sure how to get involved or they aren't exactly sure how this might impact their operation from years down the road. And so really those panels and those speakers were really trying to answer some of those questions, work with producers. And I mean, they were taking questions from right out of the audience. I mean, if you had something on your mind that was pressing, stand up and ask. And so I was really impressed. And I think it was a really good educational opportunity for those producers who are able to attend. All right, that sounds good. Let's have a listen now to some of that audio you gathered from the event. It was standing room only for the Evolution Egg Summit, the Carbon Conundrum 2.0, in Jamestown at the North Dakota Farmers Union office this week. The one-day event focused on soil carbon management and incentives for farmers and ranchers to implement carbon reduction practices on their farm and ranch. Speakers at the event included representatives from ADM, CHS, the Ethanol Industry, NDSU, the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, and Rob Sharkey, the shark farmer, served as the keynote speaker. I sat down with Matt Perdue of the North Dakota Farmers Union and chatted about the event. The parking lot was so full, you couldn't find a parking space. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I'm as surprised as anybody to see that full parking lot, but I think it's an acknowledgement that we are really providing good information that producers feel they need right now. Um, Obviously, there's a lot going on in this space, you know, whether you call it carbon, sustainability, regenerative. I think producers have decisions to make, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of them are sitting there scratching their heads. Is now the right time? Is this the right program? So we're going to unpack all of that today, and hopefully they'll walk away with a better idea of how do I make a good decision for me? That really leads me into my next question. What is it that you hope producers walk away with? What type of knowledge are you hoping they're able to gain here today at the state North Dakota Farmers Union office in visiting about the carbon conundrum? So really the event starts with an agribusiness panel where we we sort of unpack, hey, why are we here? Why is this conversation happening? We're going to talk about from there the agronomics and economics of these practices. Going back to the basics, we're still just talking about practices Mm -hmm. people do on their operations. Then we're going to talk about incentives, right? What's out there? What's available to you in your operation? And so, you know, really, I think that provides a pretty robust and comprehensive curriculum, if you will, help producers make good decisions for them. We also had the opportunity to visit with Mike Slosher, who farms in the Edgeley area. Mike spent the afternoon chatting with producers about his involvement with some of the carbon program. So I'm just going to kind of tell my story, um, you know, how I'm different than everybody else on that panel. Some of those guys have been around the block and really jumped into the carbon side and, and into sustainability egg with uh, no tilling and all that stuff. 
And I come from the prairie pothole region um, where it's typically wet. There's a lot of chisel plows around my area. And um, so the no-tilling piece is a little bit new to me. I have a couple uncles and stuff that have no-tilled, so I've learned some stuff from them. Um, but I guess I took a different approach to it using the NRCS's EQIP program. And that just kind of gave me um, a little bit of an incentive to, to try it out and try some different practices to where I'm not at such a financial risk on trying a new practice. Plus, you know, the equipment stuff that I have that kind of just worked into, um, into my, my uh, way of farming, I guess, a little bit better and uh, allowing me to try it out. So um, I'm gonna be new to a lot of these car carbon programs that are offered out there. Mm -hmm. um, I guess when I started, I wasn't really ready to jump in head first because um, I thought, well, some of these places are offering, you know, nine, 10 bucks an acre is, is am I gonna be locked into a program? I didn't fully understand it. And so I thought just getting the start with like an equip program was the best way for me to, to get started. So guys on the panel are, you know, they've done a lot more stuff that, that might be more interesting, but probably there's a lot of people that are probably in my same shoes, I guess, so. There are many questions when it comes to navigating the carbon conundrum. Matt Rollick with Arva Intelligence talked more about his work with producers in helping them gain answers to their questions. So we like to partner with trusted advisors of the farmers mm -hmm. and then work with the farmers to have a best execution on where their carbon or sustainability plan is going to be. For some growers here in North Dakota, for example, we paid out almost $2 million to local farmers, which is great. But you might have uh, uh, barley, you might have chickpeas, you might have durum, you might have wheat, corn, soybeans, whatever it might be. And each one of them has a plan or a pathway for sustainability. And let's not forget about the livestock growers here as well. There's opportunities for them as some of these calves go to feedlots, which then get on our store shelves. So putting our trusted advisors in position that can help the farmers be educated, but also participate in programs is where we come in. Do you find that a lot of producers have a lot of questions and maybe aren't sure how the entire system works? I feel like that's really what today is all about. Absolutely. I think there should be more conferences like this, to be honest. But a lot, the number one thing farmers come back to us is we're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. There's too much. And when farmers are overwhelmed, there's too much. They normally shut down, just forget it, and go back to their normal business. We're in a position now that these things are, could be double their net revenue for the next couple of years as, as prices have you know, slid down. So we encourage you to ask questions. Mm -hmm. uh, be careful about what you sign or how you get engaged with mm -hmm. stuff. But um, now is definitely the time to look at it as we're looking at you know, 20 to $200 billion opportunity over the next five to seven years. And we'll be back with more AgriBiz as Rusty Halverson will be taking you to the International Crop Expo. You don't want to miss what he learned about land values during presidential election years. Welcome back to AgriBiz. At the International Crop Expo in Grand Forks, Max Steffes, the director of real estate at Steffes Group, gave a presentation to producers about trends in the land market and some machinery values, too. At the beginning of the presentation, Mac shared an interesting tidbit regarding land values during presidential election years. 
Since 1984, there's been 10 election cycles, 10 presidential election cycles. And according to Iowa State University, only two times during those election years have land prices gone down. And that was in 2008 and I believe 2016. So history tells us there's an 80% chance in an election year that land values will stay the same or go up in that confine of time. And every year is different, so we'll see what happens this year. It's hard for me to believe that land prices could go up this year with sub-$4 corn and 8% interest. While sales for good land may retain their value this year, Max says people may be more choosy when it comes to buying marginal land. Yeah, that would be accurate. Marginal land is always the last land up and the first land down during market corrections. So I look to see this year marginal land correcting, and we've already seen a 10 to 30% correction in marginal land. I look to see that gap widening between marginal land and good land. I look to see good land still bringing good prices at or above uh, record prices. If we have $4 corn this fall, we might see a 5 to 10% correction in good land, but good land is never going to correct much more than that on an annual basis. That's Max Steffes, Director of Real Estate at Steffes Group. Good weather led to good attendance at this year's expo in Grand Forks. The Crop Expo was founded after the Alaris Center opened up, combining three smaller events that were hosted individually. I talked about the show's history with Lionel Olson, Agronomic Farm Operations Manager at the University of Minnesota Crookston Research and Outreach Center, He's a member of the Expo's organizing committee. Well, the show started out, there were three, uh, three different groups. There's a soybean driving group headed by the Grand Forks County Extension Agent at the time, and he'd get two, 300 people for a day's worth of grower meetings. Um, we had the Small Grains Institute, which took care of running the uh, Red River Valley Winter Shows, and then there's the potato growers that always had their research reporting session and their banquets and all that, uh, and their meetings at the same time. And as the farmers got bigger, and the farms got bigger, and the number of farmers got less, uh, the meetings kind of things kind of got smaller. So the three of them combined, they, when they built the Laris, the Laris actually partnered with us. So there's four groups in there, and they started the International Crop Expo. It's made up of representatives from each one of those each one of those groups. There's about uh, a dozen of us on the committee for the crop ex- for the crop expo to do all the planning, uh, getting the soybean people put there grow their educational seminars together the small greens people do their educational seminars and the potato people put their educational seminars together so it's kind of a unique show um, education is a big part of it but we also have a an expo on the floor with the uh, you can go come and kick tires you can come and talk to all your seed reps chemical reps uh, iron reps i mean there are a lot of people to visit with out there a lot of things to see a lot of new technology on the floor so it's kind of the best of both worlds we were at educational sessions that run concurrently in the mornings um, and then the show, show is open from nine o'clock to five o'clock every day the Alaris is owned and operated by the city of grand forks it opened february 10th 2001 on the trade show floor i visited with jim cornelli he's the chief operating officer for plant grow harvest an end-to-end supply chain services company for the potato industry I asked Jim about the company, which has been around for about six years now, but he's been around the industry for a lifetime. Okay, basically, my name is James Cornelli, born and raised in North Dakota Valley. Um, I, what I do right now, I'm a, I'm a percentage owner of Plant Grow Harvest, and I actually I live in Florida right now Okay. because we farm in so many areas, and I travel, me and my wife actually, we travel about 300 days out of the year. Onto all of our farms, okay. And we, I'm the 
I guess I'm the CEO of the company. Okay. Um, so I'm kind of oversee every growing area, all operations, yep. um, from head to tail. My son is involved in the company too. He's been with me now for three years. Okay. So he is now taking on a role. Um, higher up role as the operations supervisor for all the farms so it's, it's and that's kind of what led us to starting this company is because the owners as I mentioned uh, David and Ben Zeitz they're the main co-owner or the operator owners of PGH and Piper Farms um, it's a family it's a family operation and that's how it's all treated right now even though we're not per se family but that's how the business is ran as a family operation you know we we all work really well together, you know, and, and it's just been a really good, as far as, you know, over the last six years, it's just been an amazing operation to grow with in, in different areas and just expand. Okay. Now, uh, it is six years old. Yeah. Um, and we're here at the International Crop Expo. Uh, you know, and a lot of people consider this one of the best shows in the area for potato growers because of the educational uh, seminars that we have, because of the equipment here. Um, how long have you been coming to the expo since you've been around for six years? Well, I've been coming here every year as PGH since it started to this expo. Prior to that, I worked for another company out of Idaho Falls that I, I came here every year with also. So I've been, over all my lifetime, I've probably been at this show for, since it started. Okay. One one aspect or another, either being as a, as a somebody presenting here or just actually doing the tour and following through the show itself back when I wasn't in this position. Yeah. Uh, now, you say... You go from seed, and you also sell whole table potatoes, kind of the whole gamut. And it's not just in this area, it's around the nation. Yeah, correct. You know, we like I said, our main farm is in Williams, Minnesota, and it's the old existing Piper Farms that's been established since 1948. Um, uh, the Zeitz family bought that farm about 12, 13 years ago as a seed farm, and they were just growing seed as they're a smaller operation then they expanded into Arizona to do some seed sales and stuff and that's kind of where we kind of started bumping hands because I was already growing in Arizona for another company and we kind of got together and come up with this idea how we could be the best potato seed grower supplier and also as the name says plant grow harvest we want to we're there to help you plant it we grow it and we're going to harvest it and help move it so that was the, the meaning behind Plant Grow Harvest. And we did that, and we started growing so fast, it was just amazing. We really brought on a lot of different opportunities. When I started, we had about 15, 16 customers. Today, we deal with about 250 customers. And that's in all aspects of table, uh, seed and fresh. As you were mentioning a minute ago, so yeah, we're, we're, we do everything. So we use our Minnesota farm as our base G0 um, closed-loop seed farm. That farm, in return, harvests the crop, supplies our other locations, which is California, Arizona, Florida, New Jersey, Idaho, um, and we do some stuff in Washington. And you know, and, and we do work with a lot of partners in the valley here, other farmers that grow different varieties with us, and we we buy them from them and sell them. So it's it's kind of a full circle. Well, our Arizona location is also a certified seed farm. So what we do is we take the younger generations from Williams, bring them to Arizona, plant them back in the ground in Arizona as certified seed. Then we take, when we harvest that, we do a separation. Uh, the term single drop seed is pretty knowledgeable right now in the potato world. What it is is you're, you're instead of cutting potatoes like we've all done all of our lives since we were kids, 
you just size them smaller, you plant them whole, just a little further apart, which allows you to have more stem count. In return, every stem creates X amount of potatoes. So you get a bigger yield overall and better quality and less problem with your seed getting disease in the soil from other things that are just normally there. So that's what we do in Arizona. So we'll take and separate everything, take all the single drop seed, and everything that's either smaller than that or bigger, we have a pretty good size wash facility there. We can we can run about 20 semi loads of fresh product a day and we pack it everything from a one pound bag all the way up to a 2,000 pound bag. And then the single drop seed we put in a separate storage and that's what we send for early see because you have a lot of time with seed when you grow it up in the northern part if you want to send it to Florida it's kind of dormant yet because it just got harvested well they start planting September well we plant February we harvest in July that seed's ready to go so all of our southern farms are supplied with that same seed that started here and then got planted in Arizona, and then that single drop seed goes to California, Arizona, all over the place, and it's out of the ground. It's just very vigor and ready to go. So that's that's how we get a year-round supply for our customer base, not only in seed, but also in fresh. Okay, last question. Purple fingerling, what is it? What do you use it for? Well, basically, we have one that's on the table here that's displayed. It's called Bergerac. This is a TPC variety, which TPC is the potato company. They're out of Emerald. Netherlands. Okay. Um, basically, right now, we're most fingerlings get put together as a tri pack. So you'll have a red, yellow, and a purple. Okay. That's the way most fingerlings are sold right now. To me, there's a lot of them out there, and and I don't want to be biased, but this variety has a lot of moisture tent to it, content to it, and it, it cooks evenly with all the other types that are out there. That's where a purple always took longer okay. to cook, and it would get like a woody taste gotcha. this here is just like like if you dig a beautiful red potato when you cut it and the moisture runs down to cut same thing that does and it tastes amazing so this is only three years old it's it's very new we have small variety this is the first year in our Arizona location we're gonna have a quantity to sell and, and they're out the door waiting for them really Okay. Yep. If somebody wants to learn more about what you do in the company, I would guess you have a Facebook page or a website. Yeah, it's uh, pga.com is is the company, and it's it's new. It's it's being added to every year because we changed the branding on it. So some really exciting things to come on that, and it, it will place a lot of our varieties now and show our varieties also, and uh, and questions and, and everything too. You know, there's a place you can ask questions that you know send emails and we'll we definitely answer them all but definitely the pgh.com okay yep perfect uh, i think we covered it all right man Good job. speaking of potatoes the national potato council is sending a team of growers to washington dc to talk with lawmakers about their priorities during the group's washington summit Michigan Potato Industry Commission Executive Director Kelly Turner says one issue is how potatoes fit into a healthy diet for school kids. We're working through the dietary guidelines and to ensure that potatoes as a nutrient-dense vegetable is in school breakfast and lunch programs and that they're not excluded because they are the only vegetable right now that Americans are actually eating to the recommended amounts. That is Kelly Turner of the Michigan Potato Industry Commission. Speaking of school kids, we're going to talk about FFA kids coming up next on AgriBibs.
Welcome back to Agribiz. I'm Rusty Halverson, and we've got Sarah Heinrich at the ranch. Sarah, lots of folks in blue and gold were celebrating National FFA Week this past week, and I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that you've got some corduroy jackets in your family closet, don't you? You better believe it. So both Richie, myself, my sisters, you name it, his brothers. And so we were all in the blue and gold. I absolutely love this week because I am, I hold this organization near and dear to my heart. 4-H mm-hmm. and FFA are some of my absolute favorites. And with National FFA Week, it's really a chance for students to um, promote the organization, have fun activities happening at their schools, whether it's pep rallies or, you know, egg in the classroom events, trying to get kids excited about FFA. And also understand, too, that it's not just for farm kids, that there is something for everyone in FFA. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and Sarah, a lot of folks know you've got four kiddos. Uh, do you think you're going to encourage them to, to take part? Will you let them make up their own mind? I, I know Richie loves basketball. They're probably going to end up playing hoops. Are they going to be in blue and gold, too? Oh, yes. And so it's <laughs> funny you say that, because I did mention to Richie, I said, after interviewing those two young ladies, yeah. um, Wow. I'm, they can present themselves, awesome public speaking skills. And so I am going to definitely give our kids a gentle nudge that, you know, be an FFA, put yourself out there, take advantage of some of those speaking events that they're able to provide you. Because I really feel like some of those skills that they gain in some of these um, different contests and whatnot are just really great lifelong skills. Being able to, you know, public speak and, you know, livestock judging, all of those things, I feel like it's a really good way um, to really learn how to present yourself. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's check out what some of the current FFA members are up to and why the organization means so much to them. It's National FFA Week. We had a chance to visit with some of the members from the Medina FFA chapter. Sienna Garrett is in her sixth year participating in FFA. This year, she's serving as chapter vice president. Well, I've been in FFA since seventh grade, so it's my sixth year in FFA. Uh, I like FFA a lot because I like meeting all the new people and developing all those new skills. Like before, I couldn't even talk to anyone, and now I can talk to almost everyone, and I'm not really a shy person anymore. Um, I also just like winning (laughs) and like doing those contests. I think it's a lot more intriguing than doing sports or something like that. Taya Shelsky serves as the Medina FFA secretary. I've been in FFA since I was seventh grade, so I think this is my fifth year in it. And I really enjoy going to all the competitions. I enjoy participating in the competitions and winning them and just like seeing all the different things. I also enjoy to meet the new people because I have friends from the west side of the state that don't know people from the east side of the state. And it's just really fun to see the different groups there are. It's obviously been National FFA Week. Um, Visit with me about some of the fun things that Medina has done to help promote FFA right here in the school. Our chapter has done egg in the classroom, so that's when we go into the elementary elementary students and then we get to talk to them about different agricultural products. Some of us were talking about welding with the younger kids with graham crackers and frosting. Well, some of us just talked about bees and why bees are important. Overall, and then we also do dress-up days to promote it, too, along with a national service project. Sienna, what is it that you would say to maybe um, another high schooler out there who isn't involved in FFA or maybe a young kid who um, has some interest in it and say, why, why would you encourage them, I guess, to get involved? I think, it's a, I think it's really good to get involved because you create a lot of skills that you're going to use later in your careers. Um, you can also get interesting careers that you're going to have later in life. So like you're going to get a head start and know more about what you're doing. 
um, you also just meet a lot of people and meet a lot of like bigger people that are running the FFA and it's really cool to meet those people and see what they've done and also like give you uh, inspiration to do your own things. Are you ladies preparing at all for a state contest yet? Do you have an idea as far as what maybe you would like to participate in when it comes to state convention? Um, I think for state convention, I do like doing a different thing every year. So I think this year I was going to do maybe basic egg mechanics. So it's like doing all kinds of welding, car stuff, plumbing, uh, wiring, electricity. I just like competing in those because you get to meet all these new people and all people across the state are competing with you as well. So I just think it's a really cool thing to do. How about for yourself, Taya? I have been preparing for tree nursery and landscape for state convention already because our team has a very good shot of winning it and we just have been doing it since our seventh our eighth grade year since there was the COVID year and we've all just really enjoyed it and we just want to go to nationals. So what makes you interested in that in particular? It's just the I enjoy the memorization and in that competition you have to study and then you get to see the live trees and I enjoy doing looking at plants and identifying them and just seeing what they're all about and seeing the different varieties. And good luck to those ladies in the contests that they are going to be competing in. Here are some fun stats that we gathered up about the FFA program. In North Dakota, there are roughly 8,000 students who are a part of the 95 chapters across the state. There are more than 80 members in the Medina FFA chapter. Nationally, there are nearly 946,000 FFA members in more than 9,100 chapters in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. National FFA Week wrapped up on Saturday, February 24th. Welcome back to the Agribiz Show. I'm Rusty Halverson. In the markets this week, Minneapolis spring wheat may contract. Closed down eight and a half cents at six forty-six and three quarters. For direction in the wheat market, Jeffrey McPike of Wasita Commodities was a guest of the Northern Crops Institute on a recent webinar. He encourages folks to keep a close eye on India and other world producers. World production is the second highest, with a big Russian, Canadian, and Australian crop again. Argentina rebounded. It's amazing. World wheat production uh, second highest. World corn production, highest, and all because of climate change. Hmm, interesting. World wheat ending stocks are declining, maybe, but that could be larger with that Russian crop if we ever recognize it. Uh, major importer stocks are relatively low, and uh, India. We really have to watch India this year in the next three or four months. How that crop develops, uh, what signals they send, and there's an election in April, May that is very, very significant. McPike says some U.S. wheat competitors will be stepping up in the world market. Canada continues to export. They grow wheat to export it. Argentina has recovered. Australia, we don't necessarily believe some of the 30 million ton production numbers that people are putting out in Australia, but they will have a robust export program. Russia at 51 remains to be seen if they can find the demand. Shipments have picked up recently and will continue to uh, be robust as long as there's weather, no weather issues. Ukraine just keeps on going along. It doesn't look like it's adversely affected. For the Durham market, McPike says there are some factors that may keep a lid on prices. Durham area will be much will be lower, certainly in, uh, in Europe. We know that. Uh, they just couldn't get it planted. 
Uh, Italy probably be down a little bit. Canada is supposed to be up 6%. Even if they go to a normal crop, that's 7 million tons uh, of Durham. So that'll, that'll be quite a bit. That's Jeffrey McPike of Wasita Commodities. According to the latest U.S. Drought Monitor, dry conditions over the past few months has prompted the expansion of D1 drought conditions in southeast and northeast Minnesota. D0 expanded in the Dakotas, D1 expanding in North Dakota, where the last three months have been mostly dry and the lack of snow cover has exposed bare ground. Griggs County Extension agent Jeff Stockler says producers in his neck of the woods are watching soil moisture levels very closely. For Griggs County, uh, we're looking at deep soil moisture being good at the moment. Uh, Top soil moisture is, you know, okay at the moment. Uh, If we get some decent rains, you know, ahead of planting, we'll be fine to get the crop up and we'll be good early to keep the crop growing. But we're going to need, obviously, significant moisture throughout the season to to maximize yield. But uh, we're in a good starting place. But there's a lot of ifs out there yet from now until we put the seed in the ground. NDSU Extension hosted a Maximizing Soybean Profitability meeting and lunch in Hannaford this week. Stockler says soybeans are the number one crop in his county, and that comes with some challenges. Acres have continued to grow, and with the current economic situation, it looks like we're going to have more soybean acres, which isn't a positive thing. We need to continue to manage rotations, keep our rotations, because that helps with weed control and disease control and insect control. Uh, So we need to think about that. That's part of what I want to try to bring out is keeping rotations and being able to do the right things. Stockler says one weed in particular has been on the rise in the area. Yeah, so the number one weed that shows up in my survey since I've been there since the end of 2020 uh, is that kochia has pretty much increased substantially and water hemp continues to increase incrementally. So when I first got there in 2020, I found it only about five or eight percent of the soybean fields. Last year I think it was in 25 or 30 percent of soybean fields at the end of the harvest season. That's bad in and of itself. The other thing though is I capture the density within the field. Not only has the number of fields increased with water hemp at the end of the season, which I assume is because they're resistant to the herbicide program, but we've also increased the density within the fields, which makes it even worse yet. That's Jeff Stockler, the NDSU Extension agent for Griggs County. Wednesday marked the official opening of a national pilot program that will compensate farmers and ranchers for implementing high-value conservation practices on their land. North Dakota, just one of four states participating in the pilot project. Eligible counties include Billings, Cass, Foster, McKenzie, Mercer, Rolette, Stark, and Ward counties. North Dakota Farmers Union Government Relations Director Matt Perdue says interest has been strong for that program. I definitely think we're seeing a lot of interest around the state. I mean, we're talking 100 bucks an acre here. Um, I don't know any existing conservation program or any market-based incentive that's providing an incentive of that level. So, yeah, I think producers are excited about the opportunity to access this program. Officials are hoping to build on the pilot program in 2024 and 2025 and expand it into more areas in the future.
In other agribusiness news, the EPA has proposed pesticide registration plans to meet its Endangered Species Act obligations that could significantly affect farmers' livelihoods. The EPA's proposed herbicide strategy is meant to bring herbicide registrations into compliance with the Endangered Species Act. In December, the American Soybean Association conducted a survey of its former board members and a sample of soybean growers from affiliate state soy organizations. Data indicates about 80% of producers would be incompliant with the proposal and would face moderate to extreme costs to become compliant. Given herbicide resistance issues and a lack of comparable options reported by survey respondents, Farmers would be forced to adopt pricey mitigations, accept lower yields due to weed pressure, or need to stop growing crops requiring herbicides with high efficacy point requirements under the proposal. The survey indicates significant harmful impacts on U.S. agriculture if that proposal is adopted in its current form. Soybean growers were pleased that the EPA announced the deadline to finalize the strategy has been extended to August 30th. EPA requested that extension so the agency will have more time to consider public comment. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Agribiz. For Sarah Heinrich, I'm Rusty Halverson on the Mighty 790 and 104.7 KFGO. KFGO.